I hope you will keep your Bibles out this morning. First Timothy chapter 3, we're going to be there, and it's going to be especially important, as it is really every Sunday, for you to see these words firsthand. We are con- uh, concluding, we're getting close, uh, we have this week and next week in our series on church matters, uh, and this week we are going to be, uh, and we, uh, well, we've been, we're continuing really this picture, to paint a picture of what the church is according to God's design, how he is in how he is intended for it to operate, what are its house rules, but more importantly, what are the glorious purposes he has for that church when we follow his word? Words, one question we have not considered, though, and we need to as we continue in this series, and that is the question of who leads. Who leads this thing? Which I have to say is just really ironic timing. I did not intend for, uh, to preach this on uh, the, su- the same weekend that we have Independence Day. And if you don't get the irony, um, let me help you understand it. Uh, d- today we remember that uh, the Americans threw off authority of the British. And today we are going to be talking about the topic of authority, which is kind of a sticky subject for Americans, particularly. Uh, we don't lo- like talking about who is in charge in the land of the free and the home of the brave. Many of us are not entirely sure if this really matters much at all, especially why we would spend a sermon on it. But it turns out the question of uh, who leads is just as important to answer as all the other questions we've looked at, it, including what is the church, including who can join a church, including uh, how is a church led by God's word. Because today, God, again, links the health and vibrancy of our community, the place where heaven touches earth, to the kind of leaders who set the pace. And if you hang with me, I think you're going to see why it's so practically significant and what this means for you. And we're going to look at 1 Timothy 3, this passage, in three parts, answering the question of who leads, and I just need to tell you, it's going to be a little bit before we get into the real meat of our passage. We have to set the stage a bit, but hang on, we are going to get there. We're going to look at, again, three parts. Who, I mean, sorry, why do we need leaders? Who are these leaders? What kinds of leaders do we need, types of leaders? And what kind of leader do we need? Okay, so who, I'm sorry, let, let me, I'm scrambling myself. Why do we need leaders? What types of leaders do we need? And what kind of leaders do we need? We're going to begin with the first one. Who, again, I did it again. Why are the, do we need leaders at all? In chapter 3, in this passage, before we look at all of the character qualities, it, we need to notice it zooms in on two specific offices in the church. And what are those offices? The office of overseer, often called uh, elder or pastor in other contexts, they are the same role, elder, overseer, and pastor, and deacon. But before we look at these two passages, I mean, sorry, two uh, two, uh, sections, the two positions, and the expansive list of qualifications for each of them, I want you to notice something. I want you, if you've got your Bible, I should hear some pages turning, I want you to flip with me and see how many chapters there are in this book. It's a short book. Cry it out when you get it. So who, how many chapters are in the book of 1 Timothy? Six chapters. And of these six chapters, almost an entire 
chapter is given to leadership. Why? Isn't that interesting? In fact, it's not the only book that does so. In Titus, which is a book written to another pastor or someone who is raising up pastors, the book is only three chapters and devotes one entire chapter to leaders. Why? Well, in order to understand why leadership is so significant for Paul or for the life and vibrancy of the church, we need to understand a little bit more about, about the context of when this is written. You see, Paul's first letter to Timothy comes sometime after Paul's imprisonment in Rome, after he had been preaching the gospel for quite some time and starting new churches all over the world, including the church in Ephesus, where Timothy is right now. We actually hear a lot about the church of Ephesus in the Bible, a book that is written to the church of, of, of Ephesus. Anybody know what it's called? Ephesians, okay? Ephesus, Ephesians. And then we hear about uh, not only uh, it there, we hear about it in 1 Timothy and 2 Timothy, and with the, it pops up also in Revelation, where we hear a letter from Jesus himself. Why, though, is Timothy here in, of all, in all places, in this church that we hear about a lot? I, mentioned, I didn't mention even the book of Acts. Well, because at this point in its church's history, despite all that it had going for it, it had gotten itself in it terrible mess. Specifically, a group of leaders who had uh, come into the church, had worked their way into leadership, and were spreading incorrect views about Jesus and what it meant to follow him. Paul refers to it as strange teaching that they've introduced, and it ends up actually having very practical consequences as it always does when we hear incorrect views about Jesus and what it means to follow him spread. It has practical implications, and it was rending this church limb from limb, quite literally. Looking to chapter 2, which comes right before our passage, it had stirred up all sorts of ugly among its members. It seems that some of the men, particularly in this church, are showing up to Sunday gatherings in, uh, instead of leading their families in prayer and worship, they're showing up with a fight to pick. I hope, yeah, that's probably not hard to imagine for some of us, but potentially they are fighting over theology. And second, we find out that some of the women in the church are treating it like a fashion show. I hope that's, again, difficult for you to imagine, but it might not be. So some women are showing up and comparing themselves to one another, sizing each other up based on what each other are wearing or what they can afford. And because of the vanity of some and the hot-headedness of others, stirred up by false and destructive ideas about Jesus, no one, neither men nor women in this church, could actually learn from God's word, let alone worship and pray in peace. They are falling apart at the seams, fracturing. This is especially important because of what Paul says right after our passage in chapter 3, just the verses that come right after these qualifications. He reminds us of what makes the church so unique. Look there, if you would, verse 14 and 15. I am writing these things, Paul says, to you, so that if I delay, you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God. Now, if you stop there, you'd be like, oh, give me a break. It feels like a parent giving you a lecture. Here's how we behave in our house. But here is what he says the church is. 
how we behave in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, pillar and buttress of the truth. In other words, what what is happening in the church at this point isn't just unfortunate, it's blasphemous. The church, after all, isn't just some social club, it isn't some entertainment gathering. It's the household of God, God's own family, united by something more profound and enduring than blood. The church of the living God, the place where the real God, not the God of our imaginations, shows up in presence and power and a pillar and buttress of the truth, holding up the gospel before a watching world. You see why the church matters, according to Paul. The church is no ordinary thing, and it has no ordinary purpose. It is the place where the kingdom of God breaks through and the gospel of Jesus Christ becomes visible for the world to see. And whether this takes place or not, whether the church actually functions to be this beacon of light in the dark, has, is, whether it takes place or not, and it isn't, it isn't a guarantee that it will, it has to do with the way that God's people conduct themselves together. That's what he says. How they act towards each other, how they speak to one another, what they do together as a body. That is how the presence and power of God shows up or doesn't. Leaders, then, why do they matter? Well, to bring this all back around, if wrong leaders called all this to go wonky, Paul knows the right leaders will put it right. Leaders who aren't simply paid professionals, or elected representatives, or CEOs of an organization, but leaders who promote unity, who preserve worship, and protect holiness among God's people, who watch out for it, lead and protect, guiding his people, even at great personal cost. Leaders who can unite members who are very different from one another, And they are different from one another. Am I right? If you've not experienced that, friends, you've not been around very long, how is it that people who offend one another, who are different from one another, uh, how is it that they can be united in a common purpose? One of the ways that God has, one of the gifts God has given to the church is its leaders. But for this to take place, we need to look at the second question about what types of leaders do we need according to God. Now, if I was to do a survey of all of the titles we use in the church today for leadership positions, we would be here all stinking day, wouldn't we? Okay, so let's just list some of them. Uh, Deacons, archdeacons, evangelists, apostles, prophets, pastors, senior pastors, elders, Overseers, bishops, archbishops, priests, cardinals, holy reverend fathers, and there's even a pope. You think about all these terms that are thrown around in Christian circles, and uh, all these positions that we use in churches uh, on on top of these, right? So churches that we've coined, like, I mean, sorry, uh, I should say positions we've coined, like ministry directors, or trustees, or ministry leaders, or pastoral assistants, or residents. We end up with a huge list, right? 
But as I mentioned before, the Bible actually hones in on two. The only two offices that the Bible makes clear. The role of overseer, again, which I said, is often referred to as elders or pastors, most commonly as elders, and the role of deacon. The only two offices that are described in the Bible. And these offices are meant to work hand in hand, which is why they show up in such close proximity even in our passage. But let's think of the first, the elder, pastor, overseer. The role of elder, which is the most common term for this position, is actually the one we most know most about in the Bible. Elders show up all over the place. And they show up, uh, again, including in Titus 1, um, where we find another list of very similar qualifications for this kind of position. Coincidentally enough, these leaders in Titus 1 are called elders there. That's why we know that they're of the same role. The same list of qualifications here called overseers, they're called elders. And to put it succinctly, what do elders do? Well, elders are entrusted with the spiritual guidance of the church. They are entrusted particularly with its public teaching to oversee its doctrine and discipleship. They are responsible to lead, feed, and protect God's church to oversee its doctrine and mission and the general pattern of the New Testament seems to be that these elders would do so in plurality. They would do so as a team, some paid, some unpaid, bearing the responsibility of shepherding, of oversight, of care together. That's why I'm very grateful the last few years that we've been able to raise up and to call out and to ordain other elders. And I praise God for Larry Babb and John Christensen and Peter Hodges. I tell you what, friends, I have become a better pastor because of them. And haven't we been better shepherded as a people because of it? I think some of you are glad that you're not, the church doesn't rest on the shoulders of a 34-year-old pastor, right? So nonetheless, it's helpful for us to have a team that shares this responsibility. There's a metaphor behind this position, though. It's not just overseers and elders, as I mentioned. We also hear another term, pastor. It's what we think of perhaps most. It's the most commonly used term in our culture and context, and it's actually a metaphor. The pastor means shepherd. It's where the word comes from, as in a shepherd who takes care of sheep. And it reaches way back in the Bible, actually, to how God himself cares for his people. Just think of perhaps one of your favorite psalms, if you are familiar with the book of Psalms, Psalm 23. The Lord is my shepherd. And interesting that God then calls all the leaders who he appoints to his people shepherds. In other words, elders, overseers, pastors are to care for God's people as the great shepherd would, exposing and applying his word to his sheep, both in public and in private. Paul puts it in, uh, in Acts 20 this way, speaking to the elders of the church that Timothy was in right now to the Ephesian elders and he says in verse 28 pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers there's that term again to care for the church of God which he obtained with his own blood see how precious the church is to him it is his sheep not theirs and who has obtained it? He has. I shake in my boots when I read a passage like that. 
the church is precious to Christ. He intends it to be protected. And how will he do so? By giving them elders. But as I mentioned, these leaders are meant to work hand-in-hand with another type of leader. Starting in verse 8, Paul refers to deacons. Now, what exactly is a deacon? Well, the biblical data, I just have to tell you on what a deacon is, is more limited. And throughout history, deacons have done a variety of things. I'm going to get to what I, th- what I think it's clearest about, about what they should do. But I need to say first, it's very clear on what they are not. The deacons are not a second body of decision makers. Nor are they a parallel office to the elders. Nor are they a, uh, uh, a team of accountability partners for the elders. Deacons do not bear the same responsibility for spiritual oversight and teaching that the elders do. Even though they may teach, as two of our two deacons do regularly, uh, Terry and Dave, Deacons uh, may teach on a regular basis, but the prior, the, they don't bear the responsibility for that public teaching like elders do. Instead, the word for deacon, this is where we get to really what the heart of the position is. The word for deacon, you know what it is? Servant. So you have shepherds and you have servants. Now that doesn't mean that deacons are the only servants in the church Dave and Terry would say, please, no, we are not the only servants in the church, right? So it, they are the lead servants in the church. Their job is to work with the elders to equip the church for the kind of practical service we all have a responsibility for and we dare not neglect. It's possible we get a picture of this in Acts chapter 6, where seven men, full of the spirit and wisdom, Paul says, are appointed to make uh, sorry, to make sure the widows in, a, in their body who are not being fed, the Hellenistic widows who are being neglected, that they would be adequately cared for. And we find out that these men are appointed, or the elders instruct the church to appoint them because of the growing needs of this church and because the elders know they can't be responsible for everything. There are certain needs that matter so much they shouldn't be responsible for them. If they were... A ball is going to get dropped somewhere else. There are no superheroes. This matters too much for them to oversee, especially if they are going to continue to oversee the rest of the church, its doctrine and devotion, its discipleship, its health and well-being. If they, again, were to pick up that ball, they may again drop the ball of ministry of the word and prayer. And so they raise up others to work hand in hand, to be the shock absorbers of that church as it travels down the road. It's possible that this hand-in-hand relationship that was here between the seven and the apostles grew to become an official role in the church, deacons working with elders. The spiritual leaders of the church partnering with those who ministered to tangible needs in the body, elders and deacons. Jonathan Lehman, I think, puts this really helpful, in a really helpful way, uh, um, when he says, God gives deacons to do three things. Spot and serve tangible needs. Promote and protect church unity. And serve and support the ministry of the elders. He goes on. Figuratively speaking, and I just love this illustration, the elders, if the elders say, 
let's drive this car to Philadelphia. It's not the job of the deacons to come in back and say, no, let's go to Pittsburgh. Rather, they serve the elders and the whole church if they come back and say, the engine in this car won't get us all the way to Philadelphia. Their job is to point out the tangible needs, to help meet them, to point out the gaps, to make sure that we can actually follow Christ. Actually, the, the, uh, the, uh, as the elders unite us in our common mission, that we can actually get where we're going. The office of deacon is a role of support, not as elders are a, a position of spiritual authority. And yet it turns out to be just as essential. Mark Dever and Paul Alexander point this out. Without the practical service of the deacons, the elders would not be freed to devote themselves to praying and serving the word to people. Elders need deacons to serve practically, and deacons need elders to lead spiritually. In fact, I think the provision of deacons shows us that God cares for all of us, and he cares for every part of us, physical and spiritual. Isn't that wonderful that our God attends to both? He has provided for holistic, multifaceted care in his body by providing leaders who can care for his church from all sides. But before we move on, I need to point out one of these roles, the role of elder, is limited in a certain way. It is limited to called and qualified men. Paul puts it directly. In case we missed this, in chapter 2, verse 12, just a few verses earlier. I do not permit a woman to teach or to exercise authority over a man. Rather, she is to remain quiet. I wish I could spend a sermon unpacking this verse. And some of you are like, I wish you wouldn't. Okay, so this verse, there's so much that probably needs to be said about this verse, especially today. And I really could say so much about this verse if you would come talk to me after service. <laughs> but despite all the arguments to the contrary about what this verse means, it, the most straightforward reading of the text, as you just read it, and it caused maybe some goosebumps for you, the most straightforward reading of this text is exactly what it is. It's exactly what it sounds like. I've heard many of the arguments to the contrary that it's completely rooted to the cultural circumstances or that Paul was a sexist and this is proof that we can't take anything of his seriously, I have to tell you, I'm not convinced by either. I recognize, though, that this may feel extraordinarily backwards, even unjust to say today. And on the one hand, I have to say that the concerns are warranted. After all, many women in the church have been belittled and dismissed by men in the church. And they are often treated with general skepticism and fear, or at least an implicit disregard, and that is not good. But of all the injustices that are done to women, injustices that must be confronted and corrected, and our God is a defender of women, I am not convinced that Paul's limitation here is an injustice. Instead, what you will find in the Bible is that there is a difference, I should say, that difference in role does not equate a difference in dignity or in value or in giftedness. But these distinctions have been intended by God nonetheless. 
equal involvement in the church, which we would want from both men and women, equal involvement in the church does not necessitate identical involvement. Equal involvement does not necessitate interchangeable involvement. The Bible actually goes to great lengths to defend the dignity and value of women. Just read the life of Christ, who were the first witnesses of his resurrection, who were given that gift and privilege, women. And whatever God's reasons are for the limitation here, it does not mean that women are unfit for leadership, or that they're unable to teach, or that women generally are to submit to men. It doesn't mean any of those things. I want to say to the women of this church, we need you. We need you to be active, verbal participants in the life of our body, to use your gifts in any way that is consistent with the word of God. As I would say to the men as well, to use your gifts in any way that is consistent to what God has said. Our, the gifts he's entrusted, after all, are not a platform for us. They are not meant for us to prove something about our value, but to serve one another and to build this thing up together in love. Should an ear say to an eye, because I'm not an eye, I'm not needed? God has ordered the body. And friend, I need to tell you, I need to say, I need to ask you, why should your gifts only be valuable to the church unless they are used in a certain role? And yet, I also need to say that while the Bible is clear about limiting the role of pastor-elder to certain called and qualified men, it is not equally clear about limiting the role of deacon in the same way. Now, I wish I had time to spend at length on this. And again, come talk to me at service. I might give you more than you bargained for. But the fact that the word for wives here in verse 11 can also be translated as women. It's the same word. It could say wives likewise or women likewise. Along with the fact that for some reason we find qualifications for deacons applied to both men and to women. You don't see that in the list for elders. This may indicate, and I think does, that both genders served in the role of deacon in the early church, including Phoebe in Romans 16, verse 1, who is described, and we can put this verse there, as, what does it say, a servant of the church in Sencrea. Anybody know, again, what does the word for deacon mean in the Bible? And I just said it. Servant. It can be tri translated, and many think it should, as deacon or deaconess. Add to that, we find the presence of women deacons or deaconesses throughout church history, going back to the second century A.D., and the practice of appointing female deacons includes in many Bible-believing Orthodox churches, including many Southern Baptist churches to this day. In fact, if you go to the, S the Baptist Faith and Message 2000, which is our doctrinal statement here, you will notice that it limits the office of elder to certain called and qualified men, but it does not limit the office of deacon. As Southern Baptist President Al Mohler said, even on the briefing this week, the timing was ironic, and I can send you the transcript if you'd like. Whether a church appoints female deacons 
often is a church-to-church decision and has more to do with what deacons are entrusted to do, right, than what they are called. If in a church, the deacons are the ones who have the spiritual oversight and are responsible for the teaching, the Bible's pretty clear. But if, again, as I'm more convinced in the scripture, it is a role of support, working with the elders to make sure that they don't drop the ministry of the word and prayer, then I think that women are free to serve in this role. In fact, I would say uh, when the role is biblically defined, high along with others, I think not only that women can serve in this role, I think it's God's design for women to serve in this role, and a good one. Why? Because the kind of work that they do needs both men and women for it. To make sure that men and women might flourish in the church, that everyone might flourish in the church under their care and service. Now, I don't pretend to say that that answers all of your questions, and if you've got them, I'd love to talk with you. In fact, I'm going to recommend a book for you called Deacons, uh, and I can give you a copy of this book if you would like. I also have photocopied a very important chapter. Don't tell anyone. I think it breaks copyright restrictions, but regardless. The, it's for the sake of this church, all right? So it's at that table, okay? So don't go sell it on the internet, but um, the, uh, it's uh, an appendix on can women serve as deacons, and it gives a very fair treatment to both sides. The authors will say that they are convinced that women can serve as deacons when rightly defined, but they give a fair treatment to the biblical argument. I want you to see it if you would like to look at it and be happy to discuss it with you. But to bring all of this back around, I appreciate the framework that Jamie Dunlop gives. Elders lead the ministry, deacons facilitate the ministry, and the congregation does the ministry. Is the kind of leaders a church like Ephesus so needs, especially when it is fracturing apart. It, it needs deacons who can care for the church at all sides, who can pull the cracks together. Elders and deacons working in a relationship of trust, shepherds and servants looking to preserve unity, to promote worship, and to protect holiness, ensuring that no need and no individual in the church ha- that God has obtained by the blood of Christ is neglected. Do you see how much God cares for the church and what great lengths he has gone to make sure it's cared for well? But this leads to the third question, what kind of leaders do we need? So that's enough of an introduction, I think, at this point. Let's get to the meat of our passage. Don't worry, I'm going to go through this quickly. (laughs) Okay, so, but here is where the real meat of the qualifications are. Um, But can I get a show of hands here? How many of you uh, played some sort of sport in high school or college? Okay, okay, great, that's some of us. I, I did cross country. I'm, I'm not very sporty, okay? So nonetheless, um, uh, I want to say, though, if you were to name what the most important leader on a team is, what would you say? Ah, see? Okay, so many of us said coach, one who picks the play, plays, who plans the drills, who bosses from the sidelines. But there's actually a, another leader which can make or break a team's success, and I think is comparable more so to the role of God's leaders in the church, and that is a team captain. What is a team captain responsible for? They don't pick the plays or boss from the sidelines. They may not even be the most talented player on the team. But what makes for a good team captain is that they consistently 
even in the most pressure-packed situations, model integrity and excellence for the team. They model perseverance. They model follow-through. And while they don't tell the team where to run, they do set the pace. They push their teammates further than they would have ever gone on their own. And along the way, they not only win the trust of their teammates, their character and consistency begins to catch among their peers. Have you ever seen it? Sometimes you can have a really terrible coach, but with the right captain, the right pace setter, something happens in that team. Or you can have an awesome coach, and they are never able to achieve success. I promise, that's probably the only sports illustration you're going to get from me for like six months. So for those of you who love them, there you go. Uh, it's interesting, though. We might think of the right leaders, again, as coaches who have the right experience and resume to bring about organizational success. Or we might think of them as the star players who bear the whole weight of the team on the shoulders of their talent and personality. These, after all, are the kind of leaders that we expect out front of our companies, out front of our movements, leaders whose capacity and charisma wows us, inspires us. But when it comes to the church, our leaders, deacons and elders, are not so much coaches. I have to tell you, the one who comes closest to the coach of the church is Jesus. He fills out that position quite fine. Instead, they are more like captains, those who trust the coach's word and set the pace in fulfilling that word for the rest of the body. This is perhaps most clearly seen in the kind of qualifications that Paul gives us. After all, if you are looking at them, they might surprise you. Do you know what stands out or should stand out in these lists? I don't know about you, but for me, it's how unremarkable they are. As D.A. Carson puts it, again, the, looking just at the list concerning, to el concerning elders, Carson points out, the list is remarkable for being unremarkable. In other words, there is nothing about superior IQ, charisma, powerful personality, or the like. And as one who is a pastor, I'm say, praise God, okay? The Christian minister is supposed to, as he goes on, supposed to be gentle, not supposed to get drunk, and so forth. The list is remarkable for being unremarkable. Indeed, with only a couple exceptions, all the qualifications listed here are elsewhere in the New Testament demanded of all Christians. Any of these character qualities that would be okay for you? Would I ever say, well, I can't be violent, but go right ahead? It's interesting. We might think of the right leaders, uh, when we think of who the right leaders should be, we think of capacity and charisma, but in the New Testament, capacity and charisma matter far less than character. That is the true measure of the leaders we need. They are examples. They are pace setters. And while we don't have time to look at each of the qualifications, and I, I need to tell you, I think the qualifications are not meant to be comprehensive. We could add others to the list. They are more like a few brush strokes in a painting. I do want to highlight three areas where the leaders of the church are to set to this kind of example. And the first is the most obvious. Leaders in the church are to set an example for believers in personal integrity. Just notice how expansive this list is. 
Some of these qualifications, like an overseer must not be drunk or violent, that's pretty straightforward. While others, like a leader must be hospitable or gentle, might be more surprising. I mean, where's the qualifications like confident and strategic? Again, the kingdom flips the values of the world on its head when it comes to the leaders we need to put these in different words for us. We need leaders who are not prone to lose their temper or tear down others. We need leaders whose egos aren't easily bruised, who aren't crass and aren't looking for a fight to pick, who don't get bogged down in petty controversies, who don't speak out of both sides of their mouth, who are not mastered, who are careful not to be mastered by any addiction. Yes, our passage refers to alcohol specifically, but you could add drugs or pornography or video games. They don't pick favorites. They love their people more than their position. And they aren't greedy for more. More money, more platform, more praise. Rather, instead of being flippant in their role, they take it seriously knowing that they are seen and followed by others. Instead of isolating from the people around them, they welcome others into their life, both inside and outside the church. Instead of being mastered by their desires, they are able to say no even to their preferences, even when it just feels right. And instead of being self-impressed or self-loathing, they are self-forgetful. They are humble, caring for others more than they do themselves kind of leaders do we need? Those who set the pace for you, who don't just help you to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, but they strive to do it themselves. And it shows up in the way that they use their time, and they spend their money, and their desires, and their words. In fact, Paul goes so far as to say that an elder must be above reproach, and a deacon must be blameless. Sorry to the deacons out there as well, right? Above reproach and blameless. Does this mean that they are perfect? No, okay? Please, no. I'd have to resign today if that was the case. No more perfect than you should expect a faithful Christian to be. But it does mean that they should be free from the charge of hypocrisy of having some glaring inconsistency or moral failing that would threaten their credibility with the flock. That's often a judgment call about what that is. The general pattern of a leader's life, whether elder or deacon, should be faith and repentance, free from any obvious, consistent, and provable marks against them as a pace setter for the rest of the body. As Pete Scazzaro says, as, the leader, as go the leaders, so goes the church. The right letters will set the pace in personal integrity, but also in public reputation. That's the second. In public reputation. Sadly, I have seen friends in the area of personal integrity disqualify themselves already, and I'm not that far into the ministry. And I'm sobered to think of how at any moment I am only five minutes from ruining my life and my family's as well. We are that close, all of us, to ruining our lives. I don't know any leader after they fell that, tells, that would tell me they were looking to fall. 
But there is another way a leader can fall into disgrace, and it's not just inside the church, it's outside it. And Paul puts this clearly when he says, again, they should have a good reputation with outsiders. I know leaders, let me, let me illustrate this for us. Um, I know that, I know leaders, for instance, and I say this to myself too, but I know leaders who are reasonably moral, who are airtight, in fact, in their ethical behavior, and they're proud of it, but they're unkind and dismissive of those who don't share their convictions. They are cruel with non-believers, or they're unwilling to admit when they are wrong. And the reputation of the entire church and the gospel itself takes a hit when they do that. Or leaders who are so focused on the other side, on being well-liked and relatable, they're so indifferent than those around them in the jokes they laugh at, in the gossip they participate in, in the entertainment that they consume, Maybe they're so, or they're so obviously a different person in private than they are in public that it honestly surprises the non-believers in their life to hear that they're a leader in their church. Or leaders who are so isolated from the surrounding culture that the only pace that they end up setting for the church is to be isolated as well, becoming ingrown and resentful of the outside world, excusing their quarantine as faithlessness. I'm sorry, it's faithfulness, I should say. Notice in verse 7 that Paul says, when a believer, particularly a leader, falls in such a way, who falls into disgrace with outsiders, they fall right into the snare of the devil. What does that mean? I think, in other words, it says that it plays right into the devil's hands. Who wants nothing more than for the watching world to be left saying after watching its leaders, clearly the good news that they preach cannot be that good. I mean, look at who they're following. That is not to say that a faithful leader will always gain the approval of others. I mean, didn't Jesus just say in the passage we looked at last week, blessed are those when, you are, when others hate you and revile you and utter all kinds of evil for, against you on my behalf, on my, for my sake? Doesn't mean that they will always gain approval, but before God and others, their behavior must adorn the gospel, advance the gospel. It must make the gospel visible. This is perhaps why Paul warns about an elder being a new believer, because of the kind of pressures the role takes on, pressures that are bound to bring out the worst in themselves, especially if that leader has not been long tested under the sun of suffering or the thorns of worldly desire. But there is another way I want to point out that character goes on display, and it actually merges personal integrity and public reputation together. The right leader will also set the pace for others in their family life. Notice how this shows up for both elders and deacons. Elders in verses 4 and 5, and deacons in verse 12. Let me ask you, why of all qualifications does Paul zoom in on marriage and parenting? Let me tell you, it's not to say that the church should have a microscope on all of its kids and on its marriage, please. Uh, like, have the same standards you would of a faithful Christian. But it isn't, to it, I need to say, it's not saying, first, I'm going to say a couple other things that it's not. It isn't saying that an elder must have a family to be an elder, or that they must be married. That is not what this is saying. 
There is nothing about having a family that completes us. Neither does marriage, either personally or spiritually. And we know at least two men that served the kingdom very faithfully as its leaders and shepherds, who also happened to be single men. The first is the man writing this book, and the second is Jesus. Hard to disagree with Jesus, okay? But it also doesn't mean that an elder or a deacon can never have been divorced. That's also important. Some have said the husband of one wife means that they could never have been divorced and remarried. But the problem with that is the phrase itself is a one-woman man. A one-woman man. You're like, well, that's really confusing. Okay. Yeah, you're getting the difficulty of translating this phrase. But here's what I think it most likely refers to. Either, in the first century, it's a prohibition against polygamy. A pastor must not have multiple wives. That's a pretty good one, but one I don't think we struggle with. Okay, hopefully not. If that's your struggle, we really should talk. The second, though, is faithfulness. And this is what I think is the real heart. Faithfulness to one wife. Faithfulness to one woman. A one-woman man is faithful to one woman above all other women. He treats her as the most important woman in his life. That's what his marriage should be. And also, managing his household when it speaks of children. That doesn't mean that he bosses everyone around in his household or cracks the whip at home or that his children must be Christians. After all, none of us can control that. I pray nightly that the Lord would save my children, but I cannot twist the arm of God. Rather, as Robert Yarborough says, it is rather, when it speaks of managing his household, about the love of the Father through the gospel for his people, finding full and authentic expression in the real, daily, private life of a father and husband. The love of a father finding full expression through another father and husband. What I appreciate about this quote is it gets to the real reason that their family life matters. He's not zoning in, zooming, zooming in on something random. And we're, we see it directly in verse 5. Why does it matter how a leader in God's church leads their family? As it says, For if someone does not know how to manage his own household, how will he care for God's church? Again, do you see how seriously God takes care of his church? And he wants no one in a position of leadership that is a different man in private than he is in public. In other words, the closest picture you will likely get of how a leader actually walks in step with the gospel is how he treats those who are closest to him, particularly if he is married, his wife, and if he has children, his children. And how he loves them will either give them and the rest of the church a clear picture of how God loves them, or, it, or he won't. For those who are married, does this leader treat their bride like Christ treats his? For those who have children, does he treat his sons and daughters like the father does his? How can one hope to lead others to know and live in light of the gospel if he is incompetent at applying it at his own home? The text puts it that clearly for all leaders of the church. But I have to tell you, it is not just to leaders, friends. This doesn't just apply to elders and deacons. Do you want to know what you really believe about God? What does your marriage look like? How do you treat your kids and your grandkids? 
How do you speak to those who are closest to you? Do you lay your rights aside for them? Do you forgive them? Repent with them? Do you seek their good above your own? I think this whole list, the standard that Paul is holding out for elders and deacons, it actually pulls back the curtain on the standard God holds all of us to. After all, if they're pace setters, the expectation is that the church would follow in suit. What you're reading is not just your checklist to see if they are worth putting on the stage. You're seeing the kind of Christian Christ wants you to be. As I would say, I I want every man in this church to be an elder qualified man whose character matches this. We want every woman in our church to have the character of this kind of Christian. What you're reading here is a compact summary, a living picture of how we all are to conduct ourselves in the church of the living God. As Carson says, again, what's remarkable about these lists is how unremarkable they are supposed to be. With a few exceptions, they're the life and the character of a Christian. But I also need to say that your leaders, including myself, are going to, at times, struggle with this standard as much as you do. Now, please, pray for them. Pray for me that they don't fall in a way that would disqualify them from their position and, more importantly, hurt the reputation of Christ but they are going to need grace from you. They are not always going to be gentle. They are sometimes going to struggle with self-control. They will go through rocky patches in their marriage and in their parenting. Which is why I'm convinced that Paul concludes this section not by looking at elders and deacons, but by pushing past them, by treating them as the signpost to look at the leader of the church by focusing on Jesus himself. Look with me to the closing poem of verse 16. Great indeed, we confess, is the mystery of godliness. Notice that, the mystery of godliness. He's just talked about how the believers are to conduct themselves. Again, the godliness that they are to pursue. But then what does he say as the mystery of godliness? He speaks of the godly one. He was manifested in the flesh, vindicated by the Spirit, seen by angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world, and taken up in glory. Who is this? Is it the shepherds of the church? Is it the deacons? It is Jesus himself, God the Son, who has come to us, overcome sin for us, and now reigns over us, taken up in glory. Only Jesus can be the leader that we ultimately need, the leader that sets the example for us, but actually gives us the power for godliness, to love the Lord our God with our heart, soul, mind, and strength, and to live the kind of life that doesn't make much of ourselves or our leaders, but makes much of him, that his name might be proclaimed in all nations. Whether as lead shepherds, or lead servants, your leaders are only the staff in the chief shepherd's hand or the towel around the chief shepherd's waist. Jesus is the chief. The chief servant who came not to be served but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. And the chief shepherd who lays his life down for the sheep. As important as leaders are, they are not the point. Don't build a church around them. Don't follow, fall into the trap of our celebrity culture that intertwines our identity with the leader on the stage. The only one who is cut out to be the hero of this church is Jesus himself. As Paul puts it, 
follow me, but it's not full stop as I follow Christ. He is the point. Only he will hold our church together. And when he is the point of it, when he gets, when he becomes the point of our confidence, our adoration, and our, our loyalty, we shine. Believe upon him. He is the only leader who will never fail you. And he is the point in, of this gathering in the heart of this community. Why do leaders matter? Ultimately, because Jesus matters. And when it comes down to it, he is the head of this body. Lord, we come, God, we come to you as, as the one who has formed the church and built it. And in your mercy and kindness, you have, in your strange mercy, given leaders who are broken, who are in need of grace, you've entrusted leaders to shepherd as you would. And we know that's only possible by the Spirit of God actively working among us. And so we pray for the leaders of this church, particularly for myself and Peter and Larry and John as the elders in this church and Dave and Terry as the deacons of this church, that we would set the pace for this congregation, preserve us from private uh, um, compromise and from publicly defaming the name of Christ? Would we cherish uh, the health and well-being of our wives and families? And would, as a result, even in our brokenness, often through our repentance, would the church follow in suit? I pray that you would raise up more leaders, more elders, more deacons, chiefs, shepherds, and chiefs, I mean, it's not chief, I'm sorry, shepherds and servants who are under the chief. But more importantly, we pray this for the sake of Jesus Christ, that this would be the place where heaven touches earth. The watching world will be able to see, even if they might disagree with our convictions, God is among them because of how we conduct ourselves. We confess this in light of the mystery of godliness who is Christ himself. As our passage says, the one who is manifested in the flesh, vindicated by the Spirit, seen by angels, proclaimed among the nations, and believed on the world, on in the world, and taken up in glory. It's for our Lord and Savior we pray all these things. Amen.